All right. Good morning. How is everyone? All right. How was everyone's Christmas? New Year? All right. Man, I hope you have a blessed New Year. 2024? New year, new beginnings, right? New, new season, new days with the Lord. Amen. Life is good. Amen. All right, we're going to get back to our, our series in the Gospel of John. We ended our Christmas series. So today we're going to be in John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 22. 13 to 22, I'm going to read the passage for us and, and then we're going to dive into it together. If you have a copy of God's Word, pull that out, or uh, you can grab your smartphone or your message notes, and let's look at it together. Beginning in verse 13 of the Gospel of John, chapter 2, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out all the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples, here's the key word I think, remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They remembered and they believed. You know, this is a story. For a lot of people, this flies in the face of people's perception about Jesus. You know, when you're confronted with this story, you got to do something with it, right? There's a purpose for why the, the gospel writer John included this story in his gospel. You know, when you're confronted with this story about Jesus uh, coming into the temple and overturning tables and driving people out and driving the, the animals out of the temple, maybe this doesn't match with your perception of who Jesus is. You know what, maybe Today you stepped in church and you haven't been in church for a very, very long time. Well, I want to welcome you to Seven Point Church and we're going to tackle um, this passage. It's an interesting passage. Sometimes people, they look at Jesus and, oh, he's meek and he's, and he's mild and he's just loving and he's gentle. Well, what do you do with this story in the Gospel of John chapter 2? You know, our culture is... It sees Jesus as, as very effeminate, right? He's a, literally our culture drains Jesus of all deity. They don't believe that he's the God man. They drain him of, of manhood. The, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they, they present a balanced view of who Jesus is. They emphatically declare that Jesus is the God man. Emphatically, they clearly state that he is the God man. 
Jesus stood up against the religious establishment. We know that he had beef with the religious people, Sadducees and the Pharisees, right? But, but he got along and he extended compassion and mercy towards those who were broken, the outcasts of society, those who were not being cared for, those who were the, the bottom rung of society, Jesus cared for the tax collectors, the, the sinners, the prostitutes, people that were just broken in their life. You know, he called the Pharisees on one occasion vipers, he, literally snakes. When you come to the Gospel of John chapter 2, this story talks about him going into the temple, that really the outer precincts of the temple, and he made a whip of cords. Basically what he did, he probably took the, the rope um, from, from tying up the animals and he made a, a whip of cords and he twisted this rope to drive them out. Now I want you to see the context real quick because context is so important. So if you back up and look at um, verses 1 to 11, we're not going to read it, but the last time we were in, in the series, um, Jesus performed his very first miracle. Jesus was invited to a wedding. So he was fun to be around. He was a fun-loving guy, Right? You know, make sure that the gospel is offensive, not your life is offensive. Right? As Christians, sometimes we get a bad rap that we're not very fun. We're a lot of fun. Right? We should be a lot of fun. Right? I mean, God has saved us, forgiven us, forgiven us of all of our sins. We've got purpose now and, and eternal life to come. Why should we not be joyous? Right? Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in heaven. That, that's, that's our home, our true home. So as believers, let's make sure that, that our life is not offensive. The gospel message is going to be offensive. But just make sure that you're not the one with your tone, with your actions, with, with maybe hypocrisy. Make sure that you're not offending people, right? You're not a, a double standard. You know, look at the context in verse 12. So he performs his first miracle, starts his public ministry. And then in verse 12 it says, after this... He went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So that gives context to the passage that, that we're looking at. After this, this is a reference, obviously, to after Jesus performed the miracle. He turned water into wine. And yes, that's what I said. He turned water into wine, all right? If you got beef with that, take it up with Jesus, not me, all right? He goes to Capernaum, right? Now, what do we know about Capernaum? He made his ministry headquarters in Capernaum. It was there in Capernaum, which was on the, the, the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful region. It was, it was Capernaum where he, um, it was ministry headquarters. It's where he launched his public ministry. He would often leave Capernaum, do ministry, and then go back to Capernaum. Leave for a little bit and then go back. All throughout the Gospels, he's leaving Capernaum, going back, leaving, going back. So that's the context. Now, look at verse 12, 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem. So it's talking about the Passover. John is going to... Um, He's going to cite the, the, this, this Passover, this, this celebration uh, on the Jewish calendar. He's going, to re, he's going to cite this several times throughout his gospel. Now, the Passover is the, the month of Nisan, corresponds to our month of March, April. And it says that they're going to Jerusalem. 
So we know that Capernaum is in the north in Galilee. We know it's springtime, right, the Passover. So it's beautiful and, and it's green and there's flowers everywhere. Everything's blooming. But did you notice what it said? That they went up to Jerusalem. Now that's interesting because they're leaving the north, right? They're in the north, which is in Capernaum, and they're making their way down south to Jerusalem. But why would, why would it say that they went up? instead of going down. Well, the Bible uh, is very clear that you never go down to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. It's in the mountains. Now, a few years ago, we took a team to Israel, and we kind of piggybacked off of another church, and uh, I was, you know, really my mentor, um, uh, Pastor Roger, my, my wife's uncle, he led the tour, and um, it was a life-changing experience. Um, I, we were making our way to Jerusalem, and we were going through Jericho and kind of did a pit stop. I didn't quite understand why we were doing a pit stop, because it was really kind of nothing there in the region, but there was a whole bunch of camels there, and uh, Uncle Roger was like, hey, Elisha, you want to ride a camel? You ever rode a camel? I was like, no, I've never rode a camel in my life. And he got me on a camel that day in, in Jericho, and I was so terrified I was going to lose my life, man. And uh, after the camel ride, we make our way, and, and Pastor Roger, he tells me, he said, listen, just prepare yourself. Prepare yourself as we go up to Jerusalem. It's going to be breathtaking. As we're wait, making, making our way through this windy road, eventually we, we, get to the, we, uh, we get to, we ascend to the top, and there all of a sudden, from, from the middle of the mountains, opens this beautiful picture of the city of Jerusalem and the Dome of the Rock. It was absolutely breathtaking. You don't go down to Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem. And it was... Uh, it was during the Passover, which was an important Jewish celebration on the calendar. It was observed every year at, at, at that specific time to remember God's deliverance, deliverance of his people out of slavery. And, and we know the story. Moses stands before Pharaoh after Moses has this encounter with God in the burning bush. And God you know, basically calls Moses, you're going to be the leader. You're going to be the one that's going to go. And he goes, he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no, because basically the, Egypt, the, the, the Egyptian economy is literally built on Hebrew slaves. And so God says, sends plague after plague after plague. And we know that the last plague was the death of the firstborn in every family. That was like the final blow. And God told his people, here's what you need to do. You need to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. And when the, the death angel comes, it will pass over the family that has applied the blood to the doorposts. You know, it's, a, it's this beautiful picture of the gospel. That if you apply the blood of Jesus to the doorposts of your heart, you will be saved. You will be protected. You will be given eternal life. When death comes, when death comes, comes into your life, and it's going to take you, you are safe in the arms of Jesus. Amen? It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, right? And so, so every year, the Jews, they observe this Passover meal on the 14th day. They take this lamb, and between 3 and 6 p.m., they slaughter this lamb, which, by the way, exactly 3 p.m., they would 
take this shofar horn and, and they would go to the, I believe it was the southwest corner of the Temple Mount and they would blow the shofar horn, letting the people know that the lamb had been sacrificed for the sins of the people, the lamb. Well, we know that at 3 p.m. exactly, Jesus gave up his spirit, took his final breath and said, it is finished. Between 3 and 6 p.m., they would slaughter a lamb, the, the, the Jewish families. And um, they would roast the lamb for this evening meal. And the eldest son would, would, be, um, would be given the privilege to they say this one little sentence, why is this night more distinguished than all the other nights? And then the father would come up and the father would read the story or he would tell the story of the first Passover. And during Jesus' day, the Passover meal, the, the Passover, the celebration feast, was something that every Jewish person looked forward to. It was the ambition of your life to be able to um, save enough money so you can go to Jerusalem and, and you could sacrifice a lamb there. We know that they leave Capernaum, they go to Jerusalem, and the roads were probably crowded. The city was packed. I mean, sometimes we don't, we don't have this mental image in our head, but I, I want you to get this mental image in your head during the, the first century, during the time of Jesus. There had to have been tens of thousands of lambs being herded in the streets, making their way to the Temple Mount herded toward the temple so that they would be slaughtered and sacrificed for the sins of the people. There was a historian, I think it was Josephus, he said at, one, at, at, one, at the highest peak there was probably 250,000 lambs slaughtered during Passover. Incredible. Let's pick up the story. Verses 14 to 16. It says, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Here's point number one, if you're taking notes. The way we worship reveals what we think of God. The way we worship God reveals what we think of God. Now you have to remember the Jewish people, they, they did not have self-governance. Rome occupied their land. They were under the tyranny of Rome. They were under the oppression of Rome. But within the Jewish culture, you had the, the high priestly family. And the high priest, they were in charge of the temple. Now the high priest was really more than just a little puppet in the hands of Rome. But this high high this high priestly family dominated uh, for a very, very, very long time. Annas was a high priest, and all his three sons uh, were high priests. They served as high priests in succession. And then his son-in-law, Caiaphas, which we know that Caiaphas was the one who uh, led the trial against Jesus. So the high priest, the high priestly family, they were in charge of the temple. Now at Passover... Animals were required to be sacrificed. Now, there was nothing wrong with what was taking place, right? In, in one sense, yes, animals needed to be sacrificed. Um, but oftentimes, people would have to bring their own lamb. So they would either carry or put their, put their lamb on the cart. But here's the problem. The, the lamb had to be, like, perfect. 
spotless, unblemished, right? Without any sort of in injury. And so it was easy for a lot of Jewish people, they just waited until they got to Jerusalem because every lamb, now we just don't understand this, but every lamb had to be inspected by the rabbi. So a lot of people, they would just wait till they get to Jerusalem and they would buy their lamb, for the Passover lamb. And in rabbinic literature, it actually says that uh, those who did the inspection, the inspections, they were trained on a farm for 18 months and they were able to detect any sort of flaw. They could deem your lamb either clean or unclean. So it was up to them if your lamb made the cut. You're right, if, you're, if you're, or your animal um, passed inspection or if it was disqualified. Now, there was an area in the outer precincts of the temple that was actually called, it was known as Annas's Bazaar. Now, Hugh Annas was a high priest, right? Uh, like I said, they, 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 it, was, it was a family that dominated, right, during the time. Annas and his cohorts, right, they, they had a monopoly on selling all of these animals, and they, some people say, historians tell us that they sold franchises. They set up, you know, these booths to sell doves and, and pigeons and, and so people could do money exchanges. Now, in the Old Testament, if you were poor and you could not afford a lamb, then you could bring a turtle dove or a pigeon. Here's the deal. It wasn't just the selling of animals that really disturbed Jesus. There was a temple tax that was being collected, um, and, 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 and basically people were being cheated. In Exodus chapter 30, it says that you had to give like a um, half of a shekel as an offering to the Lord when you came to the temple. Here's the problem. The land was occupied by Rome. Currency that was in use was not shekels, it was Roman currency. And the coins on the Roman currency showed an emperor. And the emperor, the Caesars, they believed to be living gods. So for the Jewish people to use Roman currency that really represented um, idolatrous worship because the emperors believed that they were living gods, you couldn't give that as a temple tax to pay your temple tax. You had to pay a shekel. So the problem is they had to change money from Roman currency to shekels. And the inference here, and what theologians and historians believe, people were being cheated. They were being extorted. They were being taken advantage of. And so these people turned the outer court into this grand bazaar, right? There were, they had oxen and sheep and pigeons and there was money changers. And people were getting cheated and people were getting angry. And so what does Jesus do? He goes into the temple and he drives the money changers out. He overturns their tables. Coins are flying out everywhere. This righteous indignation that Jesus has. Now what's interesting is, if you look at all the gospel accounts, the, some of the other gospel writers mention this event. But they place the event at the end of his ministry. So, for instance, in Mark chapter 11, you can, you can look at your notes or pull out your Bible. Mark chapter 11, verses 15 and 16. The gospel writer Mark says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold 
and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, Mark gives us a detail that John doesn't give us, and here's the detail in verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So some people were using the temple as a shortcut. The temple was, think of the temple as, think of the temple this way. It was a place to meet God. It was a place for you to encounter the presence of God. It was a place for you to go and make sacrifices to make atonement for your sins. For the high priest on the day of atonement to make sacrifices for your sins, right? It was, it's the center between heaven and earth, right? It's, it's, um, it, was, it was where you met God. And so what they were doing, people were just walking through the temple, kind of taking a shortcut to get to another destination. And then notice... Um, Basically, Mark then goes on and, and basically talks about, he quotes Jesus as saying, hey, you know, this is a, you've, you've turned my father's house into a house of trade. Like people were selling stuff. People were being exploited. And, um, but in John's gospel, I want you to notice in John's gospel in verse 16, notice what John says, his kind of take on it. Verse 16, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So even John, John even picks up on that, right? The big issue is Jesus is like, you've made my father's house all about money. Jesus was like, it's not a place of worship. It's not a place of, of, of encountering God. It's a place of merchandise. And you're supposed to be worshiping God, encountering God. But what was... What was on the mind of, of, of the high priest? Money was to be made. The Jews had such a reverence for God. They would not even, do you know that the Jews wouldn't even say God's name? They wouldn't even write his name. We know that the scribes, when they wrote the name of God, before they would write it, they would cleanse themselves. Literally, they would take a bath and then write it. That's what they did. They treated God's name as holy. And now there's this huge area in the temple filled with merchandise. The worship of God had become all about money. And it sounds like our culture today. I mean, let's just be honest. There's not a lot of reverence for the name of God. God's name is holy God's name is precious. We should revere the name of God. Amen? Since my, since my kids were really, really little, I would, I would tell them, and they, they'll tell you to this day, that is, that is one thing that I'm like, I, I cut that off so fast. Like if I hear any of my kids, or if, you know, there's been times in my life where I've slipped too, right? Or if I'm around someone that I really, like I'm, I love family, I'm comfortable with them. If they take God's name in vain, I just nicely just interrupt like, you know what? God's name is holy. We should revere the name of God, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't take God's name in vain, right? God is God's very clear about this. But it sounds like our culture, very little reverence for God. You know, people want God. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people that want God. But not, not so much an intimate relationship with God. They want what they can get from God. 
They want the goodies from God. They want the benefits from God. They want the, the blessings of God. Have you ever thought sometimes maybe some of life's greatest blessings comes through sorrow and suffering and tragedy and trials that cascade upon your life? Because I, I know about me, in the good days, it's easy. It's easy to coast and not look up. But in the bad days, when things are tough, when life is hard, it's easy, it's easier during the tough days to lean into God's grace, to search for his wisdom and his understanding and, and to pray for his will and to, to under, try to understand what God, is, what God is doing in our lives. Our culture, yeah, they, they want God, but they want the goodies of God. They want God to, to make them feel good. There's a lot of emphasis on people just want, they just want to be healthy and wealthy, right? They just want to be healthy and wealthy. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. I think we're missing one thing. Do I believe that God cares about our, our health? Sure. Do I believe that God wants to bless us? You know, like I said last week, he's going to take care of all your needs, but not all your greeds. Not all your greeds. I think God is more concerned about our holiness than how much health and wealth we have. He's concerned about you being holy just like he is holy, right? And so there's, there's this idea that God is there just to bless your life. He's like this, like, um, he's like this um, spiritual um, attendant in the sky and he's there and he's there at your beck and call and he's there to serve you. No, he's the God of the universe. He's the savior. He's the author of your salvation. He's the one that, yes, he wants to bless you, but he wants to guide you and, 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 and breathe life into you. God is not someone to be used. He is someone to be worshiped. Jesus was angry over their lack of worship. It revealed where their heart was at. It was about materialism and greed and, and getting stuff and cheating people and extorting people. It showed their lack, really, it showed their low view of who God is. So Jesus overturns the tables. He drives out the oxen and the sheep and he, and he drives out all the men. And the amazing thing, here's the amazing thing about the story. And this is something that I'm like, every time I read the story, I'm like, why didn't this happen? And, and what I'm saying is, no one in the passage, John, Mark, the gospel writer, none of the gospel writers include anything about someone saying anything or someone doing anything. So just stop and think about that for a moment. There was no conversation. There was no confrontation, right? He just takes the whip and he drives people out. Everyone is stunned. Everyone is stunned. Now keep in mind one thing. They didn't know who Jesus was. This is his first public appearance in Jerusalem. No one has heard him teach no one has seen any of his miracles performed unless you were in Cana of Galilee and water was turned into wine and you were an eyewitness and, and you encountered that, then you saw that. But most people in Jerusalem had never seen any miracles. The disciples figured out what was going on. Look at verse 17. 
It says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, if you remember the beginning of our study in the Gospel of John, who were the followers of John the Baptist? Peter, Andrew, James, and John. John the Baptist was a prophet. So John the Baptist being a prophet and these Jewish dudes having a good understanding of, of the Torah and of the Old Testament, they had a pretty good understanding of Old Testament scripture, especially about the Messiah. I think they, they connected the dots. We're gonna look at that in a moment. Here's point number two. The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies revealed that Jesus is the Messiah. What the disciples said in verse 17 comes directly out of the Old Testament. It's a direct quotation of Psalm 69, verse 9. You can look at it in your notes or in your Bible. Psalm 69, verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is a direct quotation of a messianic psalm in the book of Psalms. Jesus is the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy. John, if you remember, John is not writing a, a biography. He's not even writing a chronology, right, of the events of Jesus. The, when you look at the other gospels, the cleansing of the temple happens, like I said, at the end, the, the, the last week of his life. But John, which is interesting, records it at the beginning. Now, Either he did it twice, he did it at the beginning and he did it at the end and it's like bookends, or this is just one event and the gospel writers put the story exactly where they wanted to put it in their gospel narrative. So if John's account is not a biography or a chronology of events, what is his purpose? If you remember every week, I, 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 had us, I had us keep looking at the gospel of, of John, um, chapter 20. I want to take you there real quick. John chapter 20, and I want to just tell you the purpose of the book, the, the theme of the book. Again, John chapter 20, verses, um, verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that, here's the purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ, it, it's Christos in the Greek, and it means Messiah or anointed one. This is the purpose of John's gospel, that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name that people would believe that he is the anointed one. And so he records the disciples quoting this messianic psalm about Jesus. A few verses later, John emphasizes that not only is he, is he the Messiah, but he is the son of God. We're gonna look at that in a moment. Now back to the story. People are recovering from the shock. They, they have probably all these questions. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 of, of John chapter two I mean, the people are just probably stunned, shocked. And then it says in verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign 
This is a key word in the Gospel of John. What sign do you show us for doing these things? What do you think they're meaning by that? When they say sign, they're saying, what authority, what miracle can you point to that proves that you are the Messiah? What makes you think that you're the chosen one, that you're the long-awaited Christos, the anointed one, the one that, that, that would come and, uh, and, and save us from Rome? They, 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 they didn't understand. They truly, they didn't understand a lot of things about the Messiah. Uh, they did understand that the Messiah would have zeal for the temple. The reality is, here's the reality of the event. The event itself, Jesus going into the temple was a, was a sign. It was a clear sign pointing, pointing the people that he was the Messiah. That's what Psalm 69, this messianic prophecy is all about. And guess what? The people completely missed it. They knew Psalm 69 and they missed it. Now, in Malachi chapter 3, let me read it for you. Malachi 3, verses 1 to 3. Last book of the, of the Old Testament. Malachi, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The first part of Malachi chapter 3, it refers to John the Baptist. He came to prepare the way of the Lord. The second part of Malachi 3 is a reference to the Messiah. It says that he will come suddenly to the temple and he will purify, notice that phrase, he will purify the sons of Levi. Well, who are the sons of Levi? The priestly family. You couldn't be a priest unless you were a descendant of Levi. So the priests and the priests were the ones doing the work, the service in the temple. So when Jesus cleansed the temple, it was a direct fulfillment of not just Psalm 69, it was a direct fulfillment of Malachi chapter three. The event, the reality of the event pointed to Jesus as the true Messiah. But they said, show us a sign. And he gave them a sign. He gave them a sign right there. He had zeal for the house. But here's what he does. He gives them a greater sign. It's like, you know what I find so interesting? Throughout Jesus' life, he's, he's pressed, he's pressed, he's pressed, right? People are trying to trick him in, in his words. And, and then it's just like he obliges them. It's like he goes along with it. He gives them the greatest sign. I want you to look at John chapter 2, 19 to 22. Beginning in verse 19, Jesus answered them. Because they said, well, what sign do you show us? What authority? What miracle? What, who are you? How can you do these things? How can you just come in here and overturn tables and drive money changers out? Like, who are you? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? 
But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The most significant miracle is the resurrection. The temple was not finished at the time. They were working on it for, for, for some 46 years, they said. And um, he wasn't speaking of the, the physical temple. We know that he was speaking about his body. But they took him literally, right? They misunderstood. They thought he was talking about he's going to destroy the physical temple. And he's going to rebuild it. There was, there was always these veiled references that Jesus would give. Like in the next chapter, next week we're going to look at Nicodemus. This, this amazing encounter between Nicodemus, this religious man who came to Jesus at night, and they have this beautiful conversation. And basically Jesus says, hey, Nicodemus, you want to go to heaven? You want to see the kingdom of God? You must be born again. Nicodemus was thinking physically, well, how, how, how can I do that, right? I, I've already been born once. How can I do that again, right? And no, Jesus was talking about the, the spiritual rebirth. In John chapter 4, the next week, we're going to look at the woman at the well. She had one failed marriage after another. I mean, five broken marriages, living with the guy who wasn't her husband. I mean, totally messed up, totally broken. Jesus is like, listen, I can give you water and you'll thirst no more. She's like, where is this well? It's like, she's just curious. What she didn't understand was Jesus was talking about spiritual quenching your spiritual thirst, the water being a metaphor for spiritual life. In John chapter six, when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, people thought that, you know, they, 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 they thought like physical body, like he was giving his body as some sort of cannibalism, right? And, and Jesus is like, basically like, no, it's not true. In John chapter 11, Lazarus dies. He has a conversation with Lazarus, his sister. And and he tells her, Lazarus will rise. And she's, oh, I know that. He'll rise at the, at the resurrection. But Jesus, when he said he will rise, was speaking of Lazarus' resurrection in a few minutes. So you see time and time again, they just misunderstood. They missed the boat. They didn't get it. And Jesus kept sharing, and he, and, he, and he kept trying to explain spiritual truth. The religious leaders were hostile against Jesus about what he said. But I love verse 22. 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So I want you to think about this real quick. Fast forward, fast forward three years. They spend three years with him. They see his miracles. They hear his teaching, right? Some of the disciples are there and they, they see Jesus on the cross. He's buried in a rich, man, a rich man's tomb. He, he comes back to life. He appears to all the disciples numerous times, 40 days. He's teaching. He's eating with people. People are touching him. They're singing with their eyeballs. And then the disciples were like, oh, yes, we remember. He told us that this was going to take place. You see, this separates Christianity. This is why Christianity is so unique. This is why Christianity, Jesus, is different from every other religious guru, spiritual leader, religious founder. Only Jesus claimed to be God. 
Buddha never claimed to be God. He said, look to my dogma. Look to my doctrine, right? I mean, I could start rattling off all these other religious spiritual leaders. Charles Taze Russell, founder of the Jehovah Witnesses, he never claimed to be God. Joseph Smith, he didn't claim to be God. 1830, he claims to have this vision, right? That, that, that all churches, all faiths were corrupt, and he never claimed to be God. Muhammad, he never claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be God. Not only did he claim to be God, but he claimed that he would die for the sins of all people. So he predicted his death, and then only Jesus resurrected from the grave. Like if you go to the grave of Muhammad, guess what you're going to find? Muhammad. You go to the grave of Buddha, guess what you're going to find? Buddha. Joseph Smith, you're going to find Joseph Smith. When you go to the tomb of Jesus, what you're going to find? Nothing. Jesus made the claim. In three days, I will destroy this temple. Speaking of his body, and I'll raise it up again. Our faith is anchored to that reality. It's a reality that happened, and it's where our hope lies. Because Jesus conquered the grave. Someday, we will conquer the grave as well. And we will be with Christ forever. Amen? Let's pray.